they say. Well, we thought that things would work out in the end, but friends are not friends and enemies are so close to me. I don't know who you supposed to be. So contemplate that before approaching me. Hey, fool, run that shit the fuck back, man. Yeah, it sucks to 
such man It's funny how with you out of sight You be out of mind How a good woman, friends, and money be hard to find I've been on my hustle stacking paper on the grind In Atlanta, in New York Trying to build a shot, real talk These days it's hard to stay sober Switching time zones It's a four-hour layover Fifth stop, hot blood shot Red from the doja I cry hard cause I can't flow in the soda You can tell I'm clap doja You in the corporate office somewhere over there You with the Range Rover and I ain't got time, man. I got a shot. Email me in October. I'm telling all my people, look, let's get paid. Asking on boss, man, can I get a raise? Not far from a star, two steps from a slave. Take it for myself, man, it's time to get paid. Telling all my people, look, let's get paid. Asking on boss, man, can I get a raise? Not far from a star, two steps from a slave. Take it for myself, man, it's time to get paid. Cause I'm about to die, this broke life died in this reggae Brunts don't smoke right, hot is my heyday That don't sound right, shit don't act right Guap won't stack right, at least it don't stack like it used to Let your brother kill himself, tell me what would you do So now I'm trying to see my money boo-coo No type of felines acting all new school I know what happens most usual Catch you when I poop through to a stage near you If not, grab two and come to All of you gonna let money get crucial but I won't excuse my behavior A lack thereof when it comes to the paper Time to get fun, then stack some major It's do it get done, over when I hear player I'm telling all my people, look, let's get paid Asking on boss, man, can I get a raise? Not far from a star, two steps from a slave Take it for myself, man, it's time to get paid Telling all my people, look, let's get paid Asking on boss, man, can I get a raise? Not far from a star, two steps from a slave Take it for myself, man, it's time to get
All right, peace to the guys. Man, let me do this mic check real quick. Make sure that I'm coming through clearer than clear, clear. Um, I think I'm good. So, I would like to welcome you all to another episode of The Foundation here on High Frequency Radio Network. I do want to say I appreciate you checking out the show. Today's episode is Trust. A lasting legacy. We're going to get into it today. Um, I'm looking forward to this show. So, you know, definitely welcome to the foundation. Well, we understand and know incorrect information incorrectly applied can get you hurt. Correct information incorrectly applied can get you hurt. We're looking to apply correctly correct information. I want to say all thanks, honors, praise, accolades due to the creator and the ancestors. For without them, we would not be here. I want to say peace to Big Brother Yusuf L. Um, HighFrequencyRadioNetwork.com, creator extraordinaire. There would be no so L if there wasn't a Yusuf L. So, you know, I definitely always want to give a shout out and a big Thank you to the big brother, Yusuf. I want to make sure y'all check out welcometothefoundation.com. At the very least, you sign up for the email list. Check out the PDF section. Get your free learn on. All it takes is, you know, time. Don't just spend any fiat or Federal Reserve notes to learn in the PDF section on welcometothefoundation.com. You can find the Facebook page, the Twitter page, the Instagram page for the foundation. You can also make a donation. You can book a consultation. All from the same place. And that is welcome to the foundation.com. I want to say peace to all the live listeners. All the live listeners definitely want to say peace to you. I want to say peace to all the live callers. You know, calling in, you know, I got I see you on the switchboard. You know, I'm just seeing people calling in, hanging up, calling in, hanging up. I don't know if you got bad service or what, but maybe just waiting for the music to end, like start the show. So I'm i st- I'm starting the show the show's starting, you know. It's definitely starting. So I definitely want to say peace to all the live listeners, all the live callers, you know, the regular callers who call in every single week to check out the show. I wanna say peace to the internet. Listeners, those checking out the foundation on the internet, um, I want to say super peace, respect to all the podcast listeners, those who you know, are busy working, taking care of their family, taking care of their business, otherwise indisposed to check out the show live, so they check out the archives. I want to say peace to y'all, definitely. All the podcast listeners, the MP- MP3 sharers. I want to say peace to you. As always, I want to say peace to the trustees. Definitely. Salute. And all all of those investing in their private education, I also want to say peace to those I've done business with in the private. And anyone who has sent an email, a current event, or well wishes, or otherwise added to the foundation. Definitely want to say peace to you. We're going to get started right away. Let's just go. We're going to get jump. I'm jumping right into this. I got a bunch of current events. And I definitely want to get into this show. 
first one. This is the first current event. CNN. Nope, my bad. Reuters. This is Reuters.com. U.S. fund managers brace for consumer slowdown. With expectations for slowing growth escalating, U.S. fund managers are selectively avoiding stocks in consumer companies as lofty valuations, concerns about declining earnings estimates, and consumer confidence keep them on guard. Low U.S. unemployment and rising wages should point to a healthy consumer, but worries about global growth, domestic U.S. politics, and U.S.-China trade war have been wearing on consumer and investor moves. Wall Street expects fourth quarter earnings growth of 14.7% for the S&P 500's consumer discretionary index, below 17.8% consensus, consensus, consensus from October at the beginning of the fourth quarter, according to data from Refinitiv as of last Friday morning. For consumer staples, fourth quarter earnings are expected to grow 4.2%, down from 6.7%. In comparison, the broader S&P benchmark is expected to report fourth quarter earnings growth of 16.8%. Our thoughts on the global consumer is that the marginal data points coming in are more negative than positive. This is Eric Friedman, Chief Investment Officer at U.S. Bank Wealth Management in Minneapolis, Minnesota. His firm is market weight to slightly underweight on consumer discretionary while it views consumer staples valuations as fair to slightly overvalued. U.S. consumer confidence fell to a one-and-a-half-year low in January as a partial shutdown of the government and financial markets turmoil left households nervous, according to a conference board survey. Sean Kravitz, Esplande Capital LLC's chief investment officer said while the consumer remains generally robust, most people have had something in their life in the past few months that has given them pause. And I'm going to stop right there because they're building up this um, this this narrative that the consumer is robust, but really um, the reason why consumer um, spending and purchases is going to be down is because people have had things happen in their last in their life the last couple of months. I mean, I love how these people spend this stuff. The more you read this stuff, the more you can see the spin. CNN, uh, CNBC, next one. A record number of Americans are 90 days behind on their car payments. More than 7 million Americans are at least 90 days behind on their auto loans. This is according to the New York Federal Reserve Bank. It's higher than the peak in 2010 as the country was still reeling from the devastating financial crisis. The number of distressed borrowers suggests that not all Americans have benefited from the strong labor market and warrants continued monitoring and analysis of this sex- sector, said one Fed-, Fed economist. As auto loan debt has soared, so has the number of people who can't pay, with the level of serious delinquencies breaking past the heights reached just after the financial crisis. Once again, more than 7 million Americans are 90 days or more behind on their vehicle loans as of the end of 2018, according to data released Tuesday, so that was yesterday, by the New York Federal Reserve. That's more than 1 million higher than the peak in 2010 as the country was recovering 
from the worst downturn since the Great Depression. The substantial and growing number of distressed borrowers suggests that not all Americans have benefited from strong labor market and warrants continued monitoring and analysis of this sector. This is what economists um, said in a report that accompanied their quarterly look at the U.S. consumer debt. The surge in delinquencies came along with a $584 billion jump in the auto loan total debt, the highest increase since New York Fed began keeping track 19 years ago. That's something to look at. Maybe that's what's happened. Maybe, maybe you know, something happened to them consumers in the last couple months is that they couldn't pay they couldn't pay their, their car notes. I think um, I think that has a lot to do with it. I'm going to move forward. CNBC still, CNBC says that the $22 trillion national, $22 trillion national debt number is huge. But here's what it really means. They're going to spin it for us. Let's hear the spin. National debt for the first time passed $22 trillion this week. A big, scary number that really doesn't pose much of a danger now, but threatens to in the future. The collective IOU had been rising steadily for decades, but took a sudden leap in the years after the financial crisis as the government opened the financial spigots in an effort to spur growth. President Barack Obama's administration, oh, here goes some blame, racked up nearly as much debt in eight years than in the, in the entire 232-year history of the country before he took office. He entered with $10.6 trillion in total debt and left the country owing $19.9 trillion. That's an average tab of $1.6 trillion a year. Under President Donald Trump, the debt has climbed. The $2.06 trillion increase works out to about $991 billion a year, or slightly less than the pace Obama had set. So at least they admit that it's right around the pace he set. There are two more relevant metrics, though, when thinking about national debt. One is the percentage of debt as compared to gross domestic product. That's an important measure because it gauges both the ability of the government to pay its tab through growth and because it helps measure bang for the buck in terms of how much growth the debt has helped generate. So they're just saying, oh, you know, this debt, we know it's a lot. It's it's $22 billion. But, you know, it's, it's... it's, it's generated this this growth in the economy, so you know let's just keep let's just keep going into that because you know it's, it's good for economic growth, which is oxymoronical to me. But hey, you know to each their own. Total debt compared to the economy remained pretty low for decades until it began to climb in the early 1980s, while President Ronald Reagan fought the Cold War against the former Soviet Union. Debt to GDP was about 30.6% when Reagan took office in 1981, then steadily climbed to a peak of 65.3% in mid-1995, according to data from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Then President Bill Clinton and the Republican-controlled Congress eventually carved out a short-lived government surplus, resulting in less of a need to borrow and the level to fall 30.9% in the second quarter of 2001. From there, borrowing to finance two wars along with two recessions sent the debt to GDP to 77.3% by the time Obama took office. When Obama left, the level had risen to 103.6%. Under Trump, there's been only a small uptick in the regard, with the level standing now at 104.1%. 
The other relevant metric is debt held by the public, which parses out intergovernmental holdings or money the government borrows to operate from its various trust funds like Social Security and Medicare. That figure, too, began to rise in the early 1980s from less than $1 trillion to its current $16.2 trillion. In the Obama years alone, it surged from $6.3 trillion to $14.4 trillion. That's very interesting. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that, but $22 trillion, this government is in debt. I got three words for you. Not my government. Uh, moving on to MSN money. All right? Why millions of people are getting hit with, with a surprise tax bill this year. <laughs> Americans, um, let's just say U.S. citizens, I, I, it's so weird how they, you know, they say Americans, uh, U.S. citizens, I'm going to change it, who are accustomed to receiving an income tax return tend to file their taxes early, often in late January or early February when all the paperwork becomes available. But this year, many, er, many early filers are finding to their surprise that they actually owe money to the IRS. A tweet rounding up other tweets from displeased early filers went viral because the user deliberately singled out people who are mad at President Donald Trump for raising their taxes. The truth is somewhat complicated. <laughs> the new tax law does result in some people paying higher taxes, especially over the long term, but the specific issue here is tax refunds whether, whether rather than total taxes paid. Whether you get a refund or owe extra to the IRS at filing time is a function not just of your total taxes owed, but also of how much tax is withheld from your paycheck by your employer on paydays. And the big story here is that as a result of the new tax law, the Treasury Department tweaked things so that on average, taxpayers' withholdings fell more than their actual taxes owed. This was explained in the Government Accountability Office report last summer, but it turns out that many people are not regular readers of Government Accountability Office reports and did not take the Government Accountability Office's official advice to check their withholding status. The result, a surprise tax bill. Income and payroll taxes are, in a theoretical sense, collected once a year in mid-April. In practice, however, the government has employers calculate how much tax their workers are likely to owe at the end of the year. Then each pay period, companies companies simply forward an appropriate amount of money directly to the IRS and pay you what's left over. When you file your taxes at the beginning of the year, you compare the amount of taxes you owe to the amount of taxes you've already paid, and you get either a refund or a request to send more money. And historically, by design, most people, around 75%, get a refund. That's because it's a lot easier for government to pay out refunds to people who overwithheld than to run around trying to collect cash from people who underwithheld. What's more, when underwithholding happens, it usually, either because of an error or else a special situation like a person, person with a full-time job who has also happened upon an unexpected bounty of freelance side gigs. In fact, the government hates Underwithholding so much that if you primarily derive your income from freelance or self-employment work, they start charging you a financial penalty unless you prepay your taxes on a quarterly basis. Uh, I, you know, even operating even operating corporations properly, you, you can avoid that. But you know, uh, the bottom line is millions of people are going to be hit with a surprise tax bill this year. 
Next up, this is CNBC. There's a looming threat for the stock market, and it has nothing to do with China. All right, so this is going to be a series of articles that I pulled from the web today that are touching on the same topic and the same correlations. Um, this is CNBC's Jim Cramer warns investors that an upcoming deluge of deals could hurt their profits more than China or the Federal Reserve. Uh, quoting Jim Cramer, I think the biggest threat to this bull market is denim, Cramer says, somewhat jokingly about Levi Strauss's upcoming initial public offering. With so many IPOs and not enough money to buy the stocks, the mad money host is getting worried. With all of the investors fretting about the trade war in China and the Federal Reserve's plans for interest rates, uh, Jim Craver is really worried about jeans. Quoting him, he says, Yep, I think the biggest threat to this bull market is denim. As stocks rose on hopes of U.S.-China trade deal, I, quote, right now at this very moment, am more worried about jeans than I am about China. Kramer was referring somewhat jokingly to Wednesday's news, if y'all heard today, uh, Levi says they're going public again. So this is like, it's not the first time they've gone public. Uh, they filed paperwork for initial, an initial public offering of what is known as an IPO. While he admitted that is an exciting deal, he said it will likely cause investors to sell shares of market stalwarts like PVH and Ralph Lauren so they can get in on the IPO. Now, maybe you think I'm being small-minded here, he says, quote, it's just jeans, right? Wrong. See, it's not just jeans, he said. We're about to get a tsunami of new initial public offerings that will flood this stock market with new supply. And there simply isn't enough money coming into the stock market to be able to handle all of this merchandise. Just consider some of the biggest upcoming deals. Slack, Uber, Planetaire, oh, I'm sorry, Palantir, Airbnb, Lyft, Pinterest, Postmates, DoorDash, and Reddit all plan to go public to the tune of billions of dollars. In Uber's case, $120 billion. When Slack, for example, goes public, money managers will probably sell shares of competing work collaboration platform Atlassian to make the money to buy Slack shares since they most likely won't have much new money coming in to fund those purchases. So they need to sell something if they want to do any buying. This effect will play out over and over with each IPO. When cybersecurity firm Palantir goes public, people will sell Palo Alto Networks and Proofpoint. When Postmates or DoorDash hits an IPO, Grubhub will get sold. When Uber shares finally hit the public market, hedge funds could even sell Facebook, Amazon, and Apple and Alphabet. These will be natural sources of funds, Kramer said. Historically speaking, nothing slaughters a bull market as effectively as a burst of new IPOs and secondary offerings. Whenever this has happened in recent years, we've seen whole sectors crushed by a cascade of selling. It's just the nature of the beast. And while he acknowledged that most of the upcoming deals are from companies that have great track records, Kramer worried that the market simply won't be able to sustain the IPO title wave. My worry has to do with the supply and demand. When you get a surge of new supply without an increase in demand, that's going to be a bad price. I'm sorry, bad for the prices of stocks. The bottom line, we're about to get hit with a perfect storm of IPOs, and regardless of how good this new merchandise might be, I'm concerned that the market won't be able to handle it all without taking maybe all stocks lower. More than anything else, China 
the Fed, the possibility of another government shutdown. It's the deluge of deals you should be worrying about because nobody else is. I don't know if you agree. Um, but, you know, this stuff is quite possible. Um, CNBC, a lot of negative surprises will hit the markets in coming months, says hedge fund veteran Mark Yusko. Morgan Creek Capital CEO Mark Yusko, who, is, who has a bearish outlook for the year, told CNBC on Wednesday that the market is a rubber ball bouncing down the stairs toward a bad place. While each of the major U.S. indexes has gained about 10% year-to-date, the hedge fund veteran foresees bad news on a number of fronts, including economic, earnings, revenue, and corporate layoffs. Quoted, I see lots of negative surprises, Yusko said. I think there's a lot of negative that's going to come over the next few months. He argued that Wall Street has been in a bear market rally since the Christmas Eve bottom. Each bounce is higher. That's just kinetic energy, he said. But the end of the trip's a bad place. One reason for Yusko's pessimistic outlook is what he said are high stock valuations. He said equities are, quote, 84% on average overvalued, end quote. And that the downward inflation signals, quote, economic weakness, not strength, end quote. On top of that, earnings estimates specifically in the tech sector and housing have, quote, absolutely collapsed, Yusko said. He acknowledged, however, that job growth is strong. Yusko predicted in November, last November, that securities would see a double-digit drawdown. He stuck with that sentiment on Wednesday by saying that stocks are as much as 50% away from, quote, fair value. He says nothing has changed for the better since then, except maybe, just maybe, the Fed's not going to raise rates as quickly. So everything else has fallen off a cliff. Uh, And I'm going to stop there. Y'all hear the trend? Keep going. CNBC, scary over the next couple of months. Boutique investing chief says 2019 rally won't last. Doug Ramsey, this this is a whole different dude. Chief Investment Officer of the Boutique Luthold. Luthold? I don't know how to group. On CNBC, today laid out a series of worst-case scenarios for stocks, including a broad and deep re-evaluation of the market during the next recession. They call it for the next recession. I hope you are getting ready, getting great up with this precious metals and stuff, grabbing your silver and your gold. Ramsey said he sees a U.S. economic recession in the next two years that could wipe out all the stock market gains of Donald Trump's presidency. During the past three recessions, the S&P 500 lost about 37% from December 2007 to December, I'm sorry, to June 2009. Lost about 2% from March 2001 to November 2001 and actually gained 5% from July 1990 to March 1991. Over the next year, Ramsey believes the S&P 500 could, quote, undercut last year's closing low of 2,305 51 points, which capped off a volatile year and a dismissal, I'm sorry, dismal final three months in 2018, last December. Quote, I think it's going to be scary over the next couple months, end quote, Ramsey said in a Squawk Box interview a day after the S&P 500 surged nearly 1.3%. The index, however, remained about 6.8% below its all-time closing high of 2,930 back in September even with a 16.7% gain since December 24th. Ramsey, in making his case, reiterated a couple valuation comparisons 
he made him in December. He said a markdown to the same price to earnings ratio seen at the October 2007 top would send the S&P 500 to 2,250, about 18% below today's close. The same comparison, but using price to sales would send the index to 2,050, about 25% lower. Investors might want to consider bonds rather than stocks, Ramsey suggested. Mm. I find that interesting. I got a couple more, and we'll, we'll get into the show. I think this is great. CNBC, uh, GOP. GOP stands for Grand Old Party. Republican Party. A GOP, so this is Republicans. A GOP proposal could snatch your student loan payment right from your paycheck. Student loan borrowers would have their monthly bills automatically deducted from their paychecks if a Republican-backed proposal becomes law. Senator, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, chairman of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, laid out the details of the massive overhaul to the student loan system in a speech earlier this month. The changes could affect some 40 million people. I lost my place. Average debt at graduation is currently around $30,000, up from $10,000 in the early 1990s. I get the same education. It's just costing more, maybe maybe even less of a education. The country's outstanding student loan balance is projected to swell to $2 trillion by 2022. Currently, borrowers are matched with companies that administer the federal student loan programs, and they have some 14 different ways to repay their education debt. Under Alexander's proposal, there would be just two repayment routes, one in which borrowers' monthly bills are capped at 10% of their discretionary income and another that spreads their payments out over a decade. Employers will be responsible for taking the funds from their employees' paychecks and sending them to the government. And they put in quotations, of course, student loan borrowers currently can set up automatic payments with their lender. They also typically get a discount, like 10%, 2% or something dumb, on their interest rate for doing so. I think this proposal is likely to become law after some tweaks, said Mark Kantrowitz, a student loan expert. Lamar said his proposal would streamline the student loan system and protect borrowers. Yeah, you're protecting me by taking money out of my check before I even get it, on top of all the other money being taken out of my check. It makes sure if there were no money earned, there would be no money owed, and that would not reflect negatively on a borrower's credit. Right. They want to put this into play while, you know, um, job numbers, you know, are very high. Strong. Most a lot of, most people have jobs, or you know they say a lot of people have jobs right now. So while while the numbers are really high and people are you know working still working, they're going to implement this program. <laughs> the plan quickly drew criticism from consumer advocates who called it mandatory wage garnishment for borrowers with tight budgets that need to be navigated on a monthly basis. Forced automatic payroll withholding may mean diverting money away from rent heat, or food in order to pay their student loans. 
reads a report by the National Consumer Law Center. Critics of the proposal say the payment should always be voluntary and that people need the flexibility to default on their student loans. One in five borrowers are all in default or delinquency on their student debt currently. When a borrower defaults on their federal student loans, Cantorowitz said the government currently can garnish up to 15% of their wages anyway, which is more than 10% that will be taken out under the Alexander proposal. Many borrowers who do default have sufficient income to repay their debts, but just have difficulty managing their money. There's the potential for a lot of elegance in the design of the student loan repayment via payroll withholding. Man, oh man, this is, I can't even believe, I can't even believe this. I mean, I can, but I can't. I mean, man, they're tripping. Anybody, hey, watch, watch when your government starts warring against the people. Economically warring against the people. However, Barmak Nasirian, Director of Federal Relations at the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, followed the proposal a detail, I'm sorry, detour from real reform. This is a system rife with fraud and predatory lending, he said. Some borrowers might also have an issue, he added, with their employer knowing the details of their debt. Man, oh man, oh man, oh man. Moving forward, let's get into this. Uh, U.S. posts another budget deficit as tax revenue sag. This is uh, Reuters.com. The U.S. federal government ran a $14 billion budget deficit in December. Just December. Goodness. As revenue sagged following last year's tax, tax cuts, even as the economy appears strong. Treasury Department data showed today. Analysts polled by Reuters had expected an $11 billion deficit for the month. And the gap was the latest sign of deterioration in the government's fiscal position. Man, woo, that's a lot of money in one month, man. A strong U.S. job market has appeared to power economic growth this year, an economic setting that tends to help fiscal revenues. Economists suspect some of the economic strength draws from tax cuts that came into effect at the beginning of 2018. But Washington's accounts have run $319 billion into the red since the fiscal year began in October, compared to $225 billion deficit over the same period a year earlier. Corporate taxes collected for October to December have fallen 17% from a year earlier, while taxes collected from individuals has fallen about 4%. The fiscal deterioration began well before tax cuts, however. The 12-month sum of fiscal deficits has been on a widening trend since early 2016. Washington collected nearly $900 billion less than it spent in the 2018 calendar year. Wednesday's data was released about a month behind schedule due to the 35-day partial shutdown of the government in January and December. The Treasury said federal spending in December was $326 billion down only 7% from the same month in 2017, although outlays were slightly higher than a year earlier when accounting for calendar effects. Receipts during the month were $313 billion, down 4% from a year earlier. When taken into account calendar effects, receipts were down 6% from a year earlier. I'd expect them to be down more than that because the government was shut down pretty much the entire month of December. So... If the government was shut down, or you know maybe, you know, 
they're over here saying they're not paying workers and all this other stuff. Why, why, why are the receipts so close to, you know, the amount of receipts from the same time last year when there was no government shutdown? And you see how they've been, they've been pumping up uh, the jobs and how we have a strong job economy and how that's going to help the economy. And now they're starting to say that that's not going to help. They're starting to let on to that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important to pay attention not only to what they say, but how they say it, because, you know, I, I firmly, I firmly, you know, believe that these people say stuff in the open, but they don't have to be accountable for the karma of not telling you and just doing it to you. Man, this is a lot of current events, so I'm, I'm going to move on from that, but I got, uh, let me get a couple more. Johnson & Johnson, supplier seeks bankruptcy over talk lawsuits. Talk, talk. Talk, talcum powder, talcum, I don't know. I never used that stuff. A key supplier of talk, talc, used in Johnson & Johnson baby powder, baby powder filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy today in the wake of a multi-billion dollar lawsuit alleging its products caused ovarian cancer and asbestos-related mesothelioma. Jeez. Man, hey, okay, so back up. I don't know if y'all, y'all, y'all remember that first Batman um, they put out with Michael Keaton? And uh, what was that the dude's name? Uh, the, the weird dude, um, Jack Nicholson. And he was he was doing those products, and the combination of the lipstick or whatever was driving, driving people crazy. They would laugh at death. Man, I always thought that was funny. I was really young when I saw that movie, you know, for the first time. And when he described how those products worked and how combining them together would cause these things, but you didn't know what what products it was. Man, and now we talking about Johnson and Johnson. Man, I'm telling you, man, they tell us. They tell us. Imeries, Imeries, Talk America, the U.S. unit of French group Imeries S.A. said it filed for bankruptcy because it lacks the financial clout to defend against nearly 15,000 lawsuits over its talc mineral product. Imeries said that while it continued to believe the lawsuits are without merit, the prospect of rising settlement and defense costs over the next few years prompted the decision to file for bankruptcy. They also sought a multi-billion dollar verdict against Johnson & Johnson and the ensuing media attention as factors that led to the Chapter 11 filing. In July, a Missouri jury ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay a record $4.69 billion to 22 women who said asbestos in talc caused ovarian cancer. The healthcare conglomerate has said it is appealing the verdict. Imeries, Emeries, I don't know, settled for an undisclosed amount prior to the trial. Emery's and Johnson & Johnson have repeatedly denied the allegations, saying numerous studies and tests by regulators worldwide have shown their talk to be safe. Johnson & Johnson today declined to comment on the situation with Emery's talk. America filing bankruptcy. This stuff is killing us, man. Uh, let me know which one I want to do. Molson. Molson Coors downgraded by Deutsche Bank after plunge. We can no longer defend. Deutsche Bank lowered the rating of Molson Coors brewing stock to hold from buy following the company's disappointing results and outlook from earnings. We can no longer defend a 12-month buy case, Deutsche Bank Steve Powers said in a note to investors. Molson's Coors stock dropped nearly 10%. Yesterday, after the company reported fourth quarter earnings that revealed revenue growth was slowing more than Wall Street anticipated. I mean, people ain't even buying beer no more. 
Dutch Bank said the results weakened its conviction that Molson Coors has prospects for stabilized, improved top-line trajectory. It also cited the brewer's material weakness in financial reporting, albeit seemingly contained. Powers said, we wish we had better timing. Shares of Molson Coors gained today despite the downgrade and closed at $59.16 per share, up point um, 8% or 8 tenths of a percent. Dutch Bank also lowered its price target on Molson Coors to $63 a share from $72 a share. Look at all these companies, man. It's happening. And I got a user, not a user, a listener submitted um, local news article. Want to say shout out to the initials B-O. His initials are B-O. N-E-M-F. Files for bankruptcy. This is a Tennessee... It looks like a Tennessee newspaper. Uh, New England Motor Freight, one of the top 25 largest employers in Carbon County, according to labor statistics, announced plans Monday to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection and wind down its operations. Quote, we have worked hard to explore options for New England Motors and Freight, but the macroeconomic factors confronting this industry are significant, said Vincent Calistra, a senior managing director with Phoenix Management Services Incorporated, Chief Restructuring Officer for the company. Following two years of losses and with continuing and unsustainable rises in overhead as well as severe industry shortage of drivers, we have concluded that the company has no choice but to proceed with an orderly wind down of operations in Chapter 11 proceedings. Upon the recommendation of its advisors, the company determined that Chapter 11 proceeding is the best mechanism to maximize the value of its assets for the benefit of its employees and various creditor constituencies. They ain't worried about the employees. Phoenix Management Services is serving as the company's financial and restructuring advisor. And advisor. I'm tripping over my tongue today. I'm saddened and shocked to hear this news, said Kathy Henderson, Director of Economic Development for the Carbon Chamber of Economic Development. This will be a big hit to our local economy. Commissioners, Chairman Wayne E. Nothstein, Stein offers similar sentiments, saying this is another serious setback for approximately 200 hardworking employees and the job market in Carbon County. Um, you know, there's, there's sometimes, you know, I don't get too much into, you know, listener submitted you know, articles, not that, um, you know, that I, you know, I feel a certain way and I, I'm only going to read my articles. It has nothing to do with that. It's it's just that um, a lot of times, you know, I get articles from users and, or, you know, from listeners. I don't know why I keep saying users, but from listeners. And they don't necessarily either apply to the show or, you know, to the overall foundation. So, you know, when people do send in articles that are relevant, I appreciate it. So thank you. Listener B. Oh, that's it for current events. All right. So let's do this. Um, Trust, the last legacy. Nope. My bad. Before we get into this, I want to share with y'all the seven simple steps. I'm sorry, the seven simple simple habits of financially successful people. Um, 
being financially successful, being financially stable, being an entrepreneur, being a trust administrator is a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's things that you do on a daily basis that enables you to operate at a high level of efficiency and administration. So I like, I like to share the things and, you know, some of the precepts and fundamental excuse me, principles that I have found that helped me become successful and, you know, help me, you know, what I would like to say, get out of the rat race, even though, you know, I still have to work, but I don't work for anyone else. So these are uh, seven simple habits of financially successful people. Number one, financially successful people check their, their statements every month. Matter of fact, I would say financially successful people check their bank accounts at least once a day. Um, I know when I didn't have the mindset of being a financially successful individual, um, I knew I didn't have money, and a lot of times I didn't pay attention to the accounts that would get overdrawn. I just didn't want to see it. I just didn't want to see it. It was embarrassing. It was, it was uh, disheartening. It, it just it didn't make me feel good. And, you know, we tend to avoid the things that don't make us feel good. But um, you've got to check your bank statements. You know, they're saying, they're saying monthly. I'm saying at least weekly. I'm every day, though. Number two, they plan their estate. <laughs> Let me read this real quick. Nobody likes to think about dying. Planning your estate can be a depressing task which makes it extremely easy to put off repeatedly, like forever. But without a will or a trust, you have no control over what happens to your things, your house, your car, even custody of your children, all become subject to the intestacy laws. Intestacy is when you die without a will or a trust of your estate, which may not bear any resemblance to your wishes. Number three, create and stick to a budget. Financially savvy people have a plan for their money. Uh, One of the main things I did when I first started, um, you know, being financially responsible, right? and I, it's not that I didn't make money. You know, I've always made money. I've always made a lot of money, actually. But I, I was never financially responsible. I didn't um, circulate the, the, the money properly. Um, I didn't have a budget. So one of the first things I did is I re- reduced expenses. Um, cable went out the window. Um, the whole cable package with the phone, all that stuff went out the window. Um, you know, the large data packages for the cell phone plan that got dropped down to the lowest data package and primarily use Wi-Fi or wait until I get into Wi-Fi. Um, things like that. Uh, maybe, you know, called and got a better deal on insurance rates. Um, maybe looked over, you know, the, the car insurance um, contract and decided that there were some coverages that weren't necessary. Or, you know, I could do without and started dropping things. I just really just went through everything that I spent money on and either eliminated or reduced it as best as possible. Um, believe it or not, I started shopping at thrift stores. You can find some nice stuff at thrift stores. Uh, you go to the thrift store, find something that's a size or so bigger or, you know, just barely, you know, fits, and then bring it to the tailor straight up. 
and have the tailor, you know, measure you, and and they're gonna tailor these clothes that you bought to your actual body. And I'm gonna tell you this, you know, I used to be in entertainment, and uh, I brought a brand international. It's not about the brand of the clothes; it's how well the clothes fit you that makes it look good. So I would definitely say stop buying these name brand clothes. You have to buy name brand clothes. And I'm not saying you have to go to the thrift store, but you know, stop buying other clothes that look real nice that aren't name brand. Save your money, and then bring them to the tailor to be have them tailored to your. I'm telling you, they will look like brand name. People, well, where'd you get that? It looks so nice on you. Where'd you get it? They want. It. They see how it looks on you, and they want it to look like that on them. And they ask you what, and you are, you know, it's it's uh, custom made. And watch how they look at you. Meanwhile, you're spending less money on clothes than they would if they're going to the department store trying to look like you or, you know, the models they see on TV or the rappers or the, you know, whatever. That's a big deal. Number four, they live below their means. You've you got to spend less money than you need. If you've got a W-2 job, it's impossible to pay yourself first because you're paying FICA, you're paying Social Security tax, you're paying all that stuff first. And that's being sent to the Internal Revenue Service. But once you get the paycheck and you cash it, man, go buy some silver. Go buy one ounce of silver, man. It's like $20, less than that. If it's more than $20, walk out and go somewhere else because they're trying to get you. Uh, a gram of gold is around $54, $57 right now. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still doing carrot bars. I mean, you can dollar cost average purchasing precious metals. What is that? That's saving as far as I'm concerned, paying yourself and saving. You're not going to really make a bunch of money on owning precious metals. If the money goes up, that means the currency is going down, and that means that the prices for goods and services are going up. So it's going to be nominal with the, you know, how much your metals are worth. But what you're going to do is preserve your purchasing power, which means as the value of the dollar goes down, it takes more dollars to buy milk or clothes or groceries, rice milk, almond milk. I ain't talking about a cow. I hope you don't drink cow milk. But the, the purchasing power is going to be preserved in that precious metal. And that's how I pay myself first. I, you know, I, I buy precious metals. You know, there's only a couple times. Sometimes, to be honest, there's sometimes I don't pay myself first. There's other things going on that are more important. Number six, they invest. You gotta make investments. Whether it's investment in your own business, that's one of the first investments I would make. I wouldn't even talk. I'm not even talking about stocks. You invest in your own business. Going down and filing your own LLC paperwork as the Secretary of State or whatever, the business divisions. That's an investment. Learning the skills needed to successfully run that LLC or that corporation, that's an investment. And it's not just stocks. And it's not just a diversified portfolio. An investment, if you purchase a home, it, 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 I consider a multifamily home, like a duplex and up an investment. I consider single family homes liabilities because this is going to take money out of your pocket versus put money in your pocket. Whereas if you get a duplex or something like that and you rent out the other part, you, you, you're, you have a high chance of at least breaking even. So the property isn't taking anything from you and it's not, it's not giving anything from you, but that's not an investment. Number seven, they are conscious about money. I went out to dinner with friends one night. Uh, we went to a sushi spot, but uh, I don't like the idea of eating raw fish. There are a lot of options at sushi restaurants, and I ended up ordering um, some uh, cucumber avocado sushi, which is significantly less expensive than the fancy dragon rolls and rainbow rolls 
and my dinner companions were eating. At the end of the night, we split the bill evenly. I didn't eat nearly the same amount of food, but enjoyed my time with my friends and was okay with splitting the bill evenly amongst all of us. It wasn't going to break me financially, and it wasn't something I did frequently. But it was something they did frequently. Um, a lot of people do this stuff. They spend money. They feel like they deserve it. Oh, you know, I worked all week. I've been working for two weeks all month and stuff, and I deserve this. I deserve this. You're playing yourself. It's time to get fiscally responsible. And then real quick, let me jump into this. Um, Congress, um, Honorable, let me see, hold on, who, who wrote this? Who wrote this? Alex Mooney. He's a member of Congress. He wrote to the, the chairman of the U.S. Commodity Futures Traders Commission. This is cold. Man, this is cold. He says, late last year, the U.S. Justice Department obtained a guilty plea from a former commodities trader for J.P. Morgan Chase and Company to charges of manipulating the gold and silver markets between 2009 and 2015. And its investigation into the actions of related parties is ongoing. The period at issue substantially overlaps the time during which your commission was investigating complaints of manipulation of the silver market, 2008 to 2013. However, in 2013, the commission announced that it had closed its investigation without finding any wrongdoing. Why did the commission fail to find the wrongdoing the Justice Department has confirmed and continues to investigate? That's a tough question. Also, will the commission now be reopening its investigation into silver market manipulation and opening an investigation into gold market manipulation? If not, why not? Also, I read with interest the July 28th and September 21st, 2018 letters sent to your commission by the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, and I reviewed the reply by the commission's legislative affairs director and Charles Thornton III. I am disappointed that Mr. Thornton sent what appeared to be a form of letter to brush off the serious questions the Gold Antitrust Committee Post. Thornton did not seem to acknowledge the questions put to the commission, much less answer them. I enclose copies of these letters for your review. As we conduct our own research into the fairness and competitiveness of our country's markets, particularly with respect to the monetary assets such as gold and silver, and because I believe the commission has a responsibility to address these questions conscientiously, conscientiously, I used to say this word. I wish to reiterate and elaborate on them. One, got it asserts that recently on certain trading days in New York futures markets, there have been big discrepancies between the preliminary gold open interest and final open interest reported. If this is correct, is this correct? And if so, what explains it? Does it imply market manipulation? Uh, He goes on to cite five more uh, questions that he has. And he asked to please let him know whether the commission is aware of the U.S. government and other governments are trading in U.S. futures markets directly or indirectly. Uh, what else did he say? He said something about um, foreign foreign companies or foreign countries being able to uh, manipulate the market by actually um, calling or um, making purchases or making orders for contracts. Of uh, precious metals, gold and silver, and whatnot, but they're not fulfilling the orders, which uh, may or may not manipulate. I don't really understand, you know, the market enough to understand how it could potentially be manipulated. 
But I do know that there are some things happening in the background. And I don't think, you know, what these people are saying as far as like the market downturn or something has to do with, you know, uh, lack of consumer spending and so on and so forth. Like there's a systemic and, and uh, intrinsic fault and crack in the economy and as well in, you know, the financial system. And that includes, you know, uh, the COMEX markets and these different markets that, you know, trade commodities, futures and stuff like that. And now we can get into the show after I do this. Are y'all up on HR? Man, they didn't even put the number in here. Where's the number? Sixty-seven ninety. Oh no, I'll get back to you on that. Um, the 116th Congress first session to amend the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 to clarify that gain or loss on the sale or exchange of certain coins or bullion is exempt from recognition. This act may be cited as the Monetary Metals Tax Neutrality Act of 2019. Um, in general... No gain of law shall be recognized on the sale or exchange of gold, silver, platinum, or palladium coins minted and issued by the secretary at any time, or refined gold or silver bullion coins, bars, rounds, or ingots, which are valued primarily based on their metal content and not their form. So this is this has been a heated debate. Um, you, you purchase some gold or some silver, and it seems like the price of gold and silver rises. So you purchase, you, let's say you purchase uh, uh, five gold coins and, you know, 100 silver coins. And you purchase them for, I don't know, let's say altogether you paid $10,000. I'm just saying a number off the top of my head. So $10,000 went in, now you got these five coins and these, you know, several hundred, you know, coins of uh, silver. Now, uh, you know, due to stock markets, futures uh, exchanges, and so on and so forth, the nominal value of gold and silver rises. And when you go to sell that gold and silver, you have to pay taxes on the gains of what it was worth when you bought it comparatively to the worth when you sold it. Still the same gold, still the same amount of gold when it happened. And, you know, the gain itself was, to me, a loss because due to the fact that the Federal Reserve pushes for 2% inflation on the currency per year, uh, that means five years, that's 10%. So if you buy gold, right, and hold it for five years, five years later, it's going to be, it's going to cost 10% more Federal Reserve notes to get the same amount of gold that you bought 10 years before. Think about that. So, if you buy a basket of goods, a basket of goods that costs one hundred dollars today, just with how the Fed does it, will cost you one hundred fifty dollars in fifty years. I'm sorry, in ten years, twenty years. So it's still the same milk. Milk still the same bread, still the same eggs, but you have to you have to submit 
more Federal Reserve notes to acquire these items. I want y'all to sit down and think about how ridiculous that is. Just just for a second, just think how ridiculous. Now, um, wages aren't keeping up with inflation, so you know the value of these dollars notes that you're receiving for the exchange of your labor are depreciating, but your wages and, and increases aren't keeping up with the inflation or the technical deflation of the currency. And I, you know, that's, that's something to think about. This is the type of situation here. And that's why I say pay yourself first. You get paid, buy some silver, buy some gold. It's not, it's not an investment. It's more like savings or a hedge. And it's, it's in your best interest. All right. Uh, wow. So the computer restarted on its own, so I can't see anything. But that's fine. I'm gonna start the. I'm gonna start the show. So trust a, le- a last a lasting legacy. Honestly, uh, a good friend of mine, his 13 year old daughter committed suicide last Wednesday. She hung herself. I went to the visitation on Monday. Been hanging with my guy, giving him as much support as possible, and I went to the funeral today. So my mood is a little bit off. And in this experience, and this is not the first funeral I've been to, but this is the youngest person that I've ever seen in a casket. Um, And it just so happened that the the services were held in the same funeral home where the services were held for my brother when he committed suicide. And this is the first time I've been back into this funeral home since I was in there with my brother. So I was dealing with a lot of emotions. My God was breaking down. I, it was really hard to handle this shit. So it got me thinking, you know, thinking about legacy, thinking about what we leave. She was very talented. She was a singer. She played a lot of instruments. She was 13. She was a prodigy or something. And, you know, obviously her legacy was her creation. She made a lot of videos. She sang a lot of songs. She had a great voice. But I'm looking around the room, and I'm looking at all the people in the room, and I'm asking myself, you know, because I'm always thinking about this stuff. I bet you, I, I wonder how many of these people actually have a private trust set up for their family. Now, I don't know the law or the terms of life insurance contracts when it comes to suicide. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, the contracts are void if you kill yourself. Um, and I'd have to talk to my insurance guy. Like, if, if I got insurance on one of my children and they killed themselves, would it pay out? But that was another thing I was thinking about, you know, um, I, I doubt that this little girl was was insured any type of life insurance. And it got me thinking, and not only got me thinking, but it, it really made me appreciate because I have I have daughters um that are really at the same age, they're the same age, period, they're the same age as this girl that was laying in this box, man. 
and they got me to thinking about legacy. And honestly, you know, as I'm sitting there thinking about legacy, listening to the hymns and the songs and the prayers and people giving, you know, um, their stories and the reading of the obituary and the reading of, um, you know, Bible verses and so on and so forth, it hit me. that I have properly upheld my responsibility as a father, as a protector, as a provider by setting up my family's private estate and by acquiring life insurance policies on me. And it made me feel good. It made me appreciate what I've done, all the work I've put in, all the hours of reading and studying and consulting and mentoring and flying across the country to be mentored by private individuals and so on and so forth. It made me really appreciate that. Now, this little girl loved people. She loved to help people. She loved the homeless. And, you know, we're standing around as much as we can, you know, trying to support, you know, the parents who lost this child. And this is my guy's only child, man. Attempting to console these people. And because I have a private, because I administer a private family foundation, I was able to tell them that, you know, if you need anything, let me know. And I didn't say specifically if you need money for a cause that your daughter believed in, let me know and let's do it together because I didn't think it was the time. But if you need anything, let me know. And and really what I meant by that is I want to assist in um, advancing this child's legacy Um, out of the sorrow of this moment, of this time for this family and for us, I would like to bring out some positive. But I felt bad because he doesn't have the same structures. I know he doesn't. And this, this stuff, you know, this private stuff, man, this private trust stuff, let's just say that, private state stuff, man, you can't give anybody a trust, look. You can't give it to them. Unless they're very interested in studying and understanding the administration of these private entities, private family foundations, family trusts, business trusts, asset protection trusts, whatever, charitable trusts, whatever. Unless you understand the nuances of administration and you're willing to study and and deal with ongoing education, you're not going to properly administer it. It's going to be a burden. And what do we do with burdens? We ignore them, just like our negative bank accounts that we don't check. We ignore them. And it further solidified the charitable nature by which the foundation operates here on High Frequency Radio Network. That the mission of the trust, the foundation trust, is to help reestablish the underlying understanding of economy, money, and entities all used 
to do business in the commercial realm and to protect money, real estate, property, uh, corporate shares, whatever, from the litigious public sector. There's lawyers, man. All they do is sue people. All they do is run around and sue people. And these, these, you know, these are protections. They also offer an avenue to, in this situation that I'm talking about, grieve with purpose. With a private family foundation, you can grieve with purpose. You can't hold these people anymore. You can't hug them. You can't kiss them. You can't call them and text them and tell them that you love them no more. But you can remember what was important to them the charitable things that they did with their own free time, like this this young lady, this young beautiful, beautiful angel had volunteered, I think, for Habitat for Humanity and had traveled to Mexico and was assisting the building of houses for economically disenfranchised people in Mexico who had never owned a home. with a private family foundation, with a family trust. It makes it more conducive to carry on such a legacy in the name of those who've passed. You don't need a family foundation. You can create a business trust with the specific stated purpose of transacting in those actions that were close to the heart of your lost one, which will bring you closer to the memory of the one you miss. Of the one that you can no longer hug, talk to, kiss on the forehead, Crack jokes on, talk about their toes, so on and so forth. Keep their memory alive by partaking in charitable activities. You can name the trust after that family member, that friend who has passed. And the purpose of the trust, the thrust of the trust indenture may be crafted to keep that memory alive, to make this person proud. Also to make us and allow us To, you know, in a lot of ways, make up for all the things that we weren't able to do, that we weren't able to say, or the things that we did do and did say to this person and wasn't able to say we're sorry. You see, losing a family member, losing a, a friend, losing a close person in your life is very traumatic. And there's really no 
there's really nothing that we can do. That will absolutely help us through this grieving process. But with the proper estate set up, with your proper trusts, your, your family foundation, whatever, you are in a position to provide a lasting legacy for this person. To to put action to grief and do good in the name of your lost one. My brother committed suicide. I created a trust in his name. Matter of fact, there's a, you know, um, I own a technology company. I'm consulting and stuff like that. I use his name to do business. I have clients who call me and call me by my brother's name. I created a trust, an irrevocable trust that will never die with his children as the beneficiaries. So his name will live on for as long as it is properly administered. You see, in situations of loss, we find ourselves looking and trying to figure out things that we can do, not only to pass the time, but to take our mind off of what we're dealing with. When really, I'm the type of person to let it burn. I don't really like escaping. And through that burning, take action And focus and form this this high level emotion for positive good and change. So that we can create a lasting legacy for those that we love and those that we loved. You see, none of us is gonna live forever. Some of us are going to die before we even thought about it. What do you want to leave? How do you want to be remembered? What legacy are you going to leave for those who you, whom you leave behind? For those who will miss you for those who you know the closest ones to you are going to you know they're going to hold on to your shirts and your pants or your coat and be very upset when the scent begins to fade because they feel like it's another part of you that's fading And when you pass, is your family going to fall apart? Are you one of the people in the family that keeps it together? Don't you want another person there to help keep the family together? That person is a trust. 
None of us know when we're going to go. Tomorrow is not promised. Yesterday is gone. And I'm, I'm a firm believer that tomorrow never comes. It's always today. And when it comes to that lasting legacy, what are you doing today in preparation for tomorrow? I like to take an example from, you know, the ancient Egyptians and their their tombs and the the mummification and, you know, the the, uh, acquiring of gold amulets and statues and so on and so forth they, they put in their burial chambers. And I know a lot of that stuff had to do with reincarnation or the thoughts and understandings of reincarnation. But that's legacy. You got Europeans breaking over, breaking open them, you know, tomb robbing. And all the items and the meticulous attention to detail with regards to the mummification and, you know, the release that we're painting and stuff, that is a legacy. It speaks to ages to those of the present who did not know you, but now they know of you. What do you want to leave for your family? What legacy do you want to leave from your, for your family? And when? When is it time to put down the ideation and worship of success and pick up the want? Of significance Do you want to be forgotten In 30 years Two, two, three generations How many of you can Name your great grandparents How many of you can name Your great great grandparents What connection do you truly have to your ancestors? And are are you willing to accept that that's the way it's going to be? Or are you going to stand up and do something different for your family? For those that you look at that love you, possibly depend on you, that need you, that chose you, that respect you, that honor you, what are you going to leave for them? After all the crying and the hugging and the tears and the, and the sniffles and the whys, it's time to get significant. This has had a significant effect on me. But at the, t- at the same time, it has allowed me to take stock in my life and my choices leading up to today and be relatively good with the choices that I've made. Relatively good with the situation that I've created for my family. It took a lot of sacrifice. It took a lot of Federal Reserve notes. I invested 
in just notes over $30,000 into my private education in a time frame of nine months. But it changed my life. It changed the life of my family. And I know I could have a stroke or an aneurysm right now and drop dead. I'm not leaving my family with debt. They don't have to worry about none of the debt. They ain't no debt collectors calling. They're not going to have to run around and try to find all the accounts that daddy had. They're not going to have to go and retitle a bunch of property and pay retitle fees and uh, registration fees and stuff like that. And I'm not going to have to deal with that. I'm, I'm steadily reducing the burdens that are otherwise inflicted when an individual passes that their family has to deal with. It's going to be easy. I'm going to go and find daddy's accounts. Just go, go into the safe. And pull out that minute that shows your names as successor trustees and go to the bank and take over the account that's already there. You ain't got to go in there with a death certificate, baby. Maybe you're not ready for that death certificate. Maybe you're not ready to see that right now. I want to give you time so you're a successor of the trust. All you got to do is go in there with that signed minute showing your name as a successor of the trust and showing your identification. And you will have full control over all the accounts, baby. Don't worry about it. It's not going to be hard. But actually having to do it may be hard, but the actual getting it done is not going to be hard. It's going to be relatively easy. I don't want to burden you. Life insurance policy is in is in with the trust indenture. Just just find it. It's it's in, it's in there. The number to call is highlighted. All you have to do is say issue it to the beneficiary because the beneficiary is the family trust. And now that you're you're the successor, now you have control over the family trust. When that policy, when those policies pay out. Into the family trust, baby. Pay off the pay off the properties, so you don't have to worry about mortgages or nothing like that. Disperse money to you know some money to our private family foundation, and you and all your siblings. Get out of the get out of the country. Go go to the Cayman Islands or something. Go to Cabo San Lucas. Just get away. Turn your phone off. And take your time. Death comes for all of us at some time. You never know when it's gonna be. Are your affairs in order? Are your children going to have to not only deal with the loss of their loved one, but also have to figure out how to probate or, you know, uh, to not probate, but how to administer the estate? 
try to figure out if there's a will. Where's the will? Fight with their siblings. Who gets what? Got the brother going in the house and took the TV and the couch and stuff like that. You walk in the house and your daddy's house, your daddy's house is tore up and the couch and the TV's gone. That's going to be hard. That's going to make it more emotionally hard. You got to figure out where, where the accounts are. Where's, where's, my, where's my dad's money? Where's daddy's money? Nah, you ain't dealing with that, baby. You ain't going to deal with that. You're going to go in the safe. You're going to find the trust indentures. You're going to find instructions. You're going to find a lot of precious metals, and you're going to find instructions on how to find all the other properties, all the other precious metals, where they're at, how to go get them. The keys to any safety deposit boxes. It's going to be right in there with the trust. You're a successor of the business trust. Go get access to the business trust account. Write a check from the business trust account to the family trust and dissolve the trust and close the account. You have the power to do that. You don't have to go get permission. Go, you got to drive down to the Secretary of State or drive down to the courthouse and find parking and jostle with people trying to get in the elevator and go and talk to some weird dude in the road trying to handle your daddy's stuff. You ain't got to do that. You ain't got to do that. You ain't got to do that. Don't worry about that. All the instructions are in the trust. Take care of it when you're ready. And that's where I'm at with it, you know? And that's why I want y'all to be at with it, you know? I know there's a lot of people on here, you know, in, in, in the public, in the, uh, the conscious community, like, oh, my God. We're really just trying to get over on people. When I talk about trustee training, it's not because I need money. I'm trying to get right, too. While I'm contemplating my sins, I'm thinking, God, man, and I'm racing to make them up. I don't need your, I don't need your fiat. I, I just need you to uh, initiate an energy exchange. I need you to give something up so that you value what you're about to receive. Otherwise, all my effort is in vain. And you won't value it, and you won't use it, and you won't teach it. Because if you value it, you're going to tell everybody about it, and you're going to tell people, hey, this is what you need to do, and you got to do this, and this is where it's at. You don't, you don't, if you value it, if you don't, you, you don't sit, sit somewhere and don't study and get all caught up in your life, and it's a waste. But with the family trust, you are creating a lasting legacy. For multiple, multiple, multiple generations. The, the successors of the family trust are your children or your heirs, your nieces, your nephews. Them having to work together as trustees is going to bring them together. My past, my state isn't going to be divided up amongst my children and they all go wherever they want to go. One goes to Cayman, one goes to, you know, uh, Europe. The other one goes to Japan. It's not going to have to work together as the board of trustees to administer the estate. 
make decisions together. It's going to bring them together, not force them apart. It's a family unifying entity with a lot of benefits and protections. And when, you, when, when we're talking about trust, we're talking about significance. We're not talking about success. We're not talking about how cool you are. Trust is private. You're under non-disclosure. You can't brag about it. It's not for cool points. It's for legacy. How do you want to be remembered? And how stressed out do you want your family to be when you pass? How many burdens are they going to have after you're gone? It's up to you. 100%. All I do is talk about trust. I might sometimes talk about credit or starting a business, but all of it is for the benefit of the private estate. Credit, benefit of the private Why you start a business? So I can feed my family. Duh, nigga. Uh, to benefit the private estate. That's why we got corporations. That's why we got credit. What do you do with credit? Buy stuff for your house. Buy stuff for yourself. What do you do with the money you make for the business? Buy food for the family. So yeah, I mean, I I I I stay on trust even when I'm not talking about trust. When I'm talking about corporations, or I'm talking about you know um, credit funding with Teron L. Or you know um, these different things. Passport, no social. With Chris L, that's 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 the uh, protective mechanism for the estate. There will be no challenges or successful challenges to the trust as an entity after I pass. The IRS, these creditors, they're not going to be able to pierce the trust. Because I'm teaching and have taught the heirs how to administer and how to stand on the validity of the trust and not to allow these fools to impair the obligation of a contract. Legacy. 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 Damn success. Who cares? It's fickle, it's temporary. Legacy, legacy, legacy. I'm in a mood, y'all. And I apologize. But it was really tough, you know, seeing that seeing that little little sister. And seeing the family and understanding that their legacy is not going to remain intact. And, you know, I can offer help, but the private family foundation I administer is part of my private estate, not theirs. So it may be an event, two, three, four, maybe. But if something happens to me, 
and my heirs don't decide to continue that event, there goes that family's legacy because they don't have their own structures to perpetuate their legacy on their own. And if you don't have your own, your own structure to perpetuate your legacy, it doesn't exist. People talk about, oh, I'm going uh, to avoid taxes and I'm going to be private and, and be left alone. And everybody, you know, most people come at this from a selfish standpoint. And I don't really get into it that much. You know, people, some people I talk to who don't know me, they think you, you talk like you're better than people. I'm not better than nobody. We both got booty holes and nasty stuff comes out of them. What separates me from most people is the things that I do and the things that I don't do. And I'll stand on that until the day I die. I do different things on purpose. I grind how most won't so I can live, how most can't on a daily basis. And I live for my deathbed. I picture myself with tubes in my nose and laying in his bed on hospice or whatever. And I know I'm about to die. And I try to anticipate my my what ifs, my shouldas and my wouldas and my couldas. I try to anticipate all the ways that I, my younger self let my older self down, all the things that I cannot go back and do differently. I do my best to think like that every single day. Because the worst, the worst thing to me. is being upset with myself or ashamed of regarding something I did or didn't do that's in the past and I can't go fix it. I can't go change it. I can't go upgrade it. It's over. That's one of the worst things for me. But that's just me. Five elements to a contract, meeting of the minds, offer, acceptance, performance, consideration. Let this be the offer. If you are interested in trustee training, email me at admin at welcome to the foundation.com. Articulate your interest in an email and I will respond to you with all of the information you'll need to make a decision moving forward, whether you decide to move forward or not, that's acceptance or non-acceptance or decline. I'm not a salesman. I don't care. I'm not going to sit here and convince you you need a family estate. And then these are all the reasons why. I'm going to sit here and offer up reasons as to why it's beneficial and why everyone should have it. But am I going to sell you on it? No. It's offering acceptance and private. If you're interested, add me at welcome to the foundation.com. Trustee ten training is every Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Doing on the conference con- conference line, I send you a private trust manual written by private attorneys. I assist you in setting up your business trust, your asset protection trust, and your family trust. I assist you in the document preparation. I assist you with the short form and the long form. Short form trusts and dentures, which used to evidence the existence of the private trust in the public. 
Long-form trust indenture is private and only for the trustees and successor trustees and beneficiaries. You want to get into LLCs and how to properly title the shares of a corporation or life insurance, uh, private family banking, endowments, private placement accounts, whatever. I've been mentored on all of this stuff. And what I've done is all the flights that I've taken to see multiple uh, mentors, all of the specific documents that I've um, accumulated over the years of studying trust and being mentored in trust is in a drive, a Google Drive cloud folder, and it's called Trustee Dissemination. And trustees get access to this folder. There's a lot of stuff in there that's not on the website. And we keep it moving. Trustees get my private number. You call me whenever you want. If I don't answer, I'm busy. I'll call you back. You can shoot me a text. And there's no charges for consultations for trustees. Because this is about legacy. And trustees stay in training as long as you want. There's no time limit. It's not, it's not school. It's not, it's not a course. But you're going to get quizzed and tested on in front of everybody so you feel, you feel silly or something. That's not how it works. Everyone has a different learning style. The predominantly four main different learning styles. The training is structured to meet minimally all four main learning styles. And trustee training is just that, training a trustee. I don't like people being dependent on me unless they're my dependents. I like colleagues. I like those who know what I know and can do what I know, and then we collaborate with what we know and do bigger things together. I don't like people needing to depend on me. Some people get a kick out of it, you know, withholding documents and stuff like that or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I've seen it happen. I'm not that type of dude. Legacy, legacy, legacy. What's your legacy going to be? And how long will it be intact and in existence after you dust this flesh off of your soul? I'm not taking any callers, yo. I appreciate y'all. I definitely love y'all. Y'all, y'all call your loved ones. Tell them you love them. Hug them, hug them tight. Quit tripping on bullshit, little stupid stuff that's petty. Because you're gonna be very mad at yourself if you can no longer interact with this person and you can't say you're sorry and have them look at you and say it's okay. Appreciate what you have before it's gone. And work towards preparing your estate properly and educating your heirs properly
so that you are properly remembered and your legacy will outlast you. You have an opportunity to set up your private family trust so that everyone in your family from for 10 generations will all look back and say, this is the family member that set this up for us. The one who does it first is never forgotten. Remember that. I love y'all. Take care of yourself. Love yourself. Love the ones around you. Quit playing. For most of us, life is good. We just be focusing on the negative. It's all about today because tomorrow never comes and it may not never come. And at some point in time, the day will begin without you. And those that are left behind are going to have to deal with what you did do or what you didn't do. I love y'all. Peace to the God. Doing this thing all the way live. High frequency radio.